0: February 22nd, 2023, and it is snowy outside. We've got a big winter storm that is supposed to smash records in Minneapolis. I don't know how much snow we'll get here, but it won't be smashing records. It'll just be making the roads a bit messy. I think our local public schools announced yesterday afternoon that they were going to go ahead and just close for this morning, for today. And meanwhile, in my household, we will continue on as we otherwise would. And that's because we homeschool. And this is why we homeschool, because when it's snowy outside, you don't have to go anywhere, and you don't have to wait on somebody to tell you school is canceled or it's on. You just get to it. You get to it at home. But I've got a little bit of Exodus to share with you this morning. And that is to say, I finished up the book of Genesis. I am reading a chapter a day of the Bible. And whether I get all the way through the Bible in a timely manner is not my chief concern. My interest is in reading through from cover to cover again for the first time since high school. I did read all the way through the Bible in high school. And before that, when I was very young, I was in Awanas and there was memorization, Bible verse memorization that was inherent to that, which has helped me a great deal to remember Bible verses and to recall them. They come to mind. I think the Lord brings them to mind when certain situations or decisions are presenting themselves when somebody asks me for advice. It's very typical for a Bible verse to come to mind that their theme or the topic is reminiscent of or repeats or rhymes with. (laughs) Uh, Not only does history repeat itself, it also rhymes sometimes. But it's important to read through from cover to cover the whole counsel of God, and to do that with some regularity, greater than I have thus far. I suppose you could say, if I made my first read-through by the age of 18, now I'm 36, and so at least once every 18 years would be great. That that would be great, at a bare minimum. Uh, more often would be good as well. But why this is, right? Why this is, is because it's too easy to cherry-pick verses and to just live life and make decisions and think about situations and subjects based on your favorite verses or the ones that people talk about the most. It's too easy and it's dangerous. Now, why do I say that it's dangerous? You might say, well, Garrett, I mean, as long as people are talking about the Bible, as long as they're reading it at all, that's a good thing, right? And I say, yes, to an extent, to a certain extent. The limit is where, not even necessarily maliciously, but a lot of times lazily, and with some degree of simplicity in a not so good sense, we can completely overlook important details in the narrative or in the sketch of God's character and in what He's promised and in what He has done in the past, therefore, what He is promised possibly doing even in the present because he hasn't changed, and also what he might do in the future, certainly if he's promised to, but also even if he hasn't promised to, just that he's demonstrated his power and his capability to do what he has done, what his word tells us he has done, it's good for us to know more than just what we're being told by other people. Sometimes, I don't know if you know this, but you you will if you read through all of the New Testament, for sure, from cover to cover, from Matthew to Revelation, sometimes Satan quotes scripture. And when Satan quotes scripture, the best thing you can do is rightly handle the word of truth and go back to the scripture that is being quoted and say, wait a second, that's not what that means. It is written, and then you go into the broader context, and then you say, hey, actually, you're twisting. You're manipulating. You are perverting the proper application of that passage because this, 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 this. But that doesn't come without study and without diligent application of effort over time. It takes intentionality. It takes effort. It takes applying yourself. And that is to say, that is not to say, that if you haven't been to this point, you should kick yourself. You should feel really bad. You should just go cry in a corner somewhere. No, no. If you haven't been to this point, well, then there's no time like the present to get started on it and get after it and stay after it. For my own part, I'll, I'll confess my day-to-day discipline, my ability to form new habits is not what I wish that it was. And so at the beginning of 2023, I had five, six, seven new habits that I wanted to form. And within the first week, the ruthless process of elimination that is life just continuing on despite what I was planning or initially intending, eliminated five of those new habits that I was going to form. I just gave up on them. I said, "Uh, you know, nope, that's not going to happen. Nope. Nope. I'm going to have to pick maybe two. And even among those two, one of them is recording a podcast every day. And on that one, it's like, okay, that's not even really going to be a thing. I'm not going to record a podcast episode every day. So if I do two out of three days, cool, that's fine, right? Because this is a means to an end. It's not an end unto itself. Hopefully you listening. To this podcast is not an end unto itself. It's a means to an end. And so if you don't listen every day, that's fine because what is the big idea? What is the end goal ultimately? If I don't record every day, that's fine because what is the big idea? And what was I doing instead of recording? If I was doing what the Lord had for me to do today instead of recording a podcast, well, then God be praised and and life goes on. But with Bible reading, I think that if I don't have time to read a chapter a day, then something is really off. Something is really wrong with my time management, or I'm too busy, or I'm trying to do too many things, and I really need to focus up. I need to pare down. Just like with my habits that I was trying to form, new habits, if I was trying to form seven new habits, well, then maybe let's actually make that two and one of those. uh, I'm not really going to be too strict with myself about. And one of them, one of them, I want to make a high priority. And that one being my Bible reading. If there's other things that I'm not going to do as much or as often for that period of time that I am reading, or I'm listening to the audio on dwell, this great little Bible app that I've got on my phone now. Thanks Micah Hirschberger, for recommending it. If I'm listening to one chapter a day, at least well, then great. And so far it has not been even that successful. It's better, right? It's better than it was without having set any, any kind of a goal. It's not been perfect. I am not actually getting a chapter in every single day, but when I miss a day, I go back and I listen up to the present, right? So if I missed two days, well, I'm going to listen to three chapters today and that's fine, right? It actually doesn't take that much time. And it, at the other end, after I've listened to three chapters, I think, man, why why did I skip yesterday? Why did I I not think that I had time the day before yesterday? That wasn't so long. It's done already. But what's happened, right? What's happened in the course of reading, let's say the three chapters that I read today, is that all of a sudden I'm thinking about those three chapters of God's word throughout the day. As I'm reading the news, as I'm talking with my wife and my kids, as I'm working, as I'm reading other books or reading other articles about various things, whatever it is I'm doing, if I'm folding laundry, if I'm paying bills, cleaning out my email inbox, I have a chunk of contiguous (laughs) verses and chapters to meditate on. And I find that that is very good for my soul and it's very good for my mental health and my emotional health, my spiritual health, and it would be for yours as well. If you're approaching it to know God better and to go to him for truth, truth that is from a spiritual standpoint, from an intellectual standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, from even a practical standpoint, your daily bread, well, then you also will derive a benefit and it won't be necessarily identical to the benefit that I derive. But that is to say, when I read Exodus chapters one, two, and three, like I did this morning, or listen, as the case may be for people who want to be particular, if I am taking in Exodus one, two, and three, I am not necessarily seeing all the same things or recognizing all the same patterns that you might And you're not necessarily recognizing all of the same patterns that I might and how these things relate to life, to the life that the Lord has given me to live or the life that the Lord has given you to live. But let me just share in case it's helpful. Hopefully it is helpful. Let me share what Exodus one through three is sparking in my mind in the way of realizations. And maybe it'll be encouraging. Maybe it'll be helpful. Maybe it'll teach you something or help you to kindle an interest in reading God's word on a regular basis. Like I am trying to develop a habit myself. So Exodus 1 starts out talking about the sons of Israel. That is the sons of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, who God made a covenant with. These would be his people. He would be their God. Here are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, so he didn't have to go there. Already there, guys. Way ahead of ya. Then Joseph died, it says, and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, just stop right there for a moment. Stop there with me long enough to appreciate how this might read to a father of seven sons and one daughter like myself. As I think about how much I read of history and literature and philosophy and theology, and as much as I read of the news cycle and as interested as I am in what's going on right now today, and I will check throughout the day five or six different news websites just to see, is there anything remarkable, any updates on this or that item that was late breaking news. It was a headline. The end of the day yesterday, I'm curious to see how that story is developing because I want to know so that I can make informed decisions as a husband, as a father, as a man, as a friend, as a brother, as a son. I want to be able to make informed decisions if and when these current events intersect with my personal business, because they will. They will in some form or fashion. Some of the things that are in the news Are really just white noise and a distraction, yes. But not all of it. Not all of it is somebody else's problem. Some of this is my circus and my monkeys, (laughs) and I need to pay attention. But even so, as much as I pay attention, maybe all the more because I pay so much attention to the news, it's important for me to think bigger picture and to take the long view. And I don't just mean in hindsight, I mean thinking forward does the Lord perhaps have in store for my sons and my daughter? What might their lives look like when they get married and they have children of their own and then their children beget children after them? What does their circumstance look like? Because it's not the same kind of thinking necessarily as somebody who, for instance, has one child. They have one son or they have one daughter, much less somebody who has no children, somebody who has no children, but may someday, or they have no interest whatsoever. Like a lot of young people my age, increasingly have no interest in having any kids. There's lots of reasons for that, which we won't get into, but actually that intersects as well for me personally. I look at a lot of other people my age, either having one or two, and then they're done, or not having any children whatsoever. And I think that means that means that my descendants, Lord willing, God protect them, are going to make up a disproportionate share of the population of whatever country we live in. If we continue abiding in the state of Colorado, for instance, in the city of Greeley, for instance, My descendants are going to make up a disproportionate share of the next generation of Coloradans and whatever you call people from Greeley, Greeleyites or whatever. My descendants are going to make up a outsized portion compared with the descendants of my peers, particularly if they don't have any kids at all. But I read this and I look at what is said in chapter one, verse seven: the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly which is to say that they weren't afraid to have children, which is to say, I think, in my view, that they were being obedient to what God had called them to. And they were trusting God that God would provide for them and their offspring. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, that's great, right? That's really fantastic. That's exciting. That's happy. That's woohoo. Go team, go particularly when you consider that just a few generations prior to Jacob, Abraham and his wife Sarai, who was then renamed Sarah, were very old and still didn't have any kids. Together, Abraham had had a son named Ishmael with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, and it was Sarah's idea because she didn't believe that God would allow her to actually have a son in their old age. She did not believe God. So as much as we might look down on Abraham for that, look down just as much on Sarah, by the way, equal opportunity, except she's the one who got chided more than Abraham did, really, as I read it. Just a couple of generations prior, To Jacob, who wrestled with God and then was renamed Israel, you have Abraham, who has no sons in his old age, and then God promises to give him a son and make him into a great people, into a mighty nation, his nation, because God wants to demonstrate his power to accomplish his purposes regardless of our ability. In fact, picking someone who apparently has no ability, humanly speaking, or at least with his wife at her age, maybe she was infertile in their younger years, but definitely now that she's older, God is going to supernaturally suspend or upend or modify and prove that he can because he's the originator of nature's laws show his power and now they are a exceedingly strong people who has multiplied and filled up the land of Egypt and you think wow that's amazing <clears throat> and they lived happily ever after right everything was just great after that point because they were strong and numerous, and Egypt was an exceedingly good land for them to fill up. Right? Yeah? No? No. No, actually. We're seven verses in to Exodus chapter one, and then it turns, starting in verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? and let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, let's just stop there. Let's stop there for a moment. A new king who did not know Joseph rises up. And maybe I missed it, but I don't know how long into the future this was. I don't know if this was decades, if it was a century. I don't know how long it was. I missed it. If it was there, I didn't catch it, but I think it's not there. If you're seeing it, let me know. But it looks like it's just some undetermined amount of time after the death of Joseph and his brothers, that generation. And actually, in point of fact, if we think about our current American circumstance, it doesn't take that many generations to have been born and passed away before younger generations will just completely write off what happened in the past, in our own history. So also with Egypt, what, two, three generations, four generations? It's not hard. It's not hard. And as far as we know, they didn't have any kind of <laughs> photographic evidence, no audio recordings, no video Reels that they could play to say, hey, remember when, remember when 80 years ago there was a guy named Joseph? So if it wasn't written down or people weren't reading the inscriptions and the papyrus and if they weren't passing it along word of mouth wise, it would be very easy to forget and just say, yeah, whatever. This is our time now. But it says here that Israel was both dreadful to Egypt and also as afraid as they were that Israel might go over to an enemy's side, which, yeah, if you're treating them awful, of course, they were also afraid that Israel might escape. So there's this weird, twisted, unhealthy relationship between Egypt and Israel, wherein the Egyptians are afraid of Israel because Israel is strong and prosperous. And there's a lot of Israelites. They have big families, and then their children after them have big families, and their children after those have big families. They're increasing greatly. And that's scary to the Egyptians, but also they don't want them going anywhere, which we'll find as we go along with Moses being sent to Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't want to let Israel go. So they kind of don't want them, but they also don't want them to go away. So they don't know what they want. They want the labor, and so they enslave them. And we see that. They put taskmasters over them because they don't trust them, but they do need them. Or, if you will, Israelites can be put to the labor that Egyptians don't want to do. How convenient. I hate to say this, but in the United States, we see a very similar thing. For instance, with Hispanics who migrate here from south of the border. Democrats primarily saying, oh, no, we can't secure the border. We don't want to stop illegal immigration because where are the gardeners and the groundskeepers and the janitors and the housekeepers? Where are they going to come from? And meanwhile, conservatives, Republicans, will say, well, that's an awfully exploitative reason to say, let's allow for illegal immigration. And the line is that Americans don't want to do these jobs. And so we need illegal immigration. Or like Chuck Schumer said last year, Americans are not having kids like they should be. And so let's keep on aborting American babies, but let's also keep illegal immigration at a healthy pace so that Hispanic Americans come up and have bigger families because we don't want to. Very, very similar dynamic, I think, between Israel and Egypt, where there's a fear. There's a scary aspect, even as there is an economic incentive to keep the Israelites around. And so what is done? Taskmasters are put over them. And Pharaoh says, let's deal shrewdly with them so that they don't get out of hand. Let's prune, let's clip and snip and remove the males of the generation that are being born, throw them into the Nile if the midwives won't cooperate. And so this is wild stuff that it was going so well. Israel was being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it, but that's exactly what the Egyptians both love and hate about them. Lots of inexpensive labor. Also, too, you guys are at a certain point going to way outpace us because we don't want to keep up with your birth rate. So it takes a turn for the children of Israel, and they're enslaved. And not only are they enslaved, but their sons are being regarded as a threat, even just when they're born. When they're very first born, there's a target on their back to eliminate them. Because they're competition for Egyptian boys. And the Egyptians don't want their boys having to compete with the Israelite boys. How about that? This is another reason why we homeschool, by the way. It is. More on that in a minute. But this is one of the reasons why we homeschool. You don't send your baby boys off to your enemies and then let them figure out what they're going to do with your baby boys you just don't. Boys in particular, but then if you're not going to send your boys off, then why send your daughters either? It's interesting to me that the Hebrew midwives disobey the Pharaoh and God rewards them for it. It's interesting to me in light of the attitude that too many Americans have to a hands-off approach when it comes to authority figures who are corrupt, who are misbehaving, who are requiring and mandating what they ought not to, what they have no right to, right here, you can't miss it. Not only do the midwives disobey Pharaoh, but they lie to Pharaoh as to the reason that these baby boys are still somehow coming through. And for those who get very pragmatic and very prudential in their reasoning, and they come to a Fork in the road like this, like the Hebrew midwives are faced with. And they say, well, if we don't, then what's next, right? Maybe Pharaoh will try to do something more drastic. Maybe we do this so that we avoid a larger conflict. Maybe if we don't do this, then the oppression against the people of Israel more broadly is going to be more severe and worse. And so we have to go along with it in order to avoid a worse fate, which is how, again, a lot of, far too many American Christians for too long have reasoned. Not enough American Christians have reasoned like the Hebrew midwives actually did. When they come to that fork in the road, they have for years said, we're going to take the route of just doing whatever we're told and Pharaoh will reward us. Interestingly enough, when the Hebrew midwives here in Exodus disobey Pharaoh and then lie to him, lie right to his face about why they did, God rewards them, which is a better it's a it's a better incentive structure, if you really think about it, to have God reward you. God has a lot more wherewithal. He's got a lot more pull. But if you continue on, dropping down from chapter one of Exodus to chapter two, you've got the birth of Moses. A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. So she knows, right? She knows exactly who it is she's going to pull from, the river, based on the circumstances, she knows what's going on. This is not going to be an Egyptian baby, not a fine looking child like this. The Egyptians are not hiding their babies, not their baby boys. The Hebrews have to. Because Pharaoh did escalate. When the Hebrew midwives lied to him and disobeyed him, Pharaoh commanded all his people every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Cast into the Nile, meaning drown them. Drown them like so many unwanted puppies, because that's, for all he cares, as much as they're worth. Nevertheless, you have Moses' mother hiding him for three months, and it says when she could hide him no longer. What does that mean? She could hide him no longer. It means it was getting dangerous. It means... The pressure campaign was increasing in its severity. Maybe there were house-to-house searches, for instance. Next thing you know, Pharaoh is being subverted by his own family, in some sense. You've got a member of Pharaoh's own household, the daughter of Pharaoh, taking in this Hebrew baby boy, which presumably Pharaoh knows in due time before long. But it's being used by God. It's, it's used of God that Pharaoh is being subverted at every turn because he's wrong. What he's commanding is evil and wicked. He has no right to be commanding what it is that he's commanding. It's ironic that his own daughter is going to protect Moses, rear Moses, and that his own mother, Moses' own mother, is going to be a wet nurse to him. Now, that's a sad thing, right? It's a sad thing. It's a bittersweet thing because she should be raising Moses. And yet, given the circumstances, this is as good as it's going to get. This is as good as they can do. Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages, So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So Moses knows, right? Moses knows when he's grown up, he's been told these are his people. The Hebrews are his people. He looked this way and that, checking to see if anybody is watching. And when he thinks the coast is clear, he kills the Egyptian. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Yeah, you think? When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, full stop here. There's a a lot going on in this paragraph that we have to understand, we have to appreciate. Part of the reason why it can't be tolerated that Moses, though being raised by Pharaoh's own daughter as a son in the household having just killed an Egyptian, that can't. Once that's common knowledge, you can't let that slide if you're Pharaoh. And if decades of domestic policy have been shaped by a fear of the Hebrews rising up against their Egyptian overlords, you can't let that slide. You have to make a example of Moses all the more because if he gets away with it, well then, more and more Hebrews are going to say, hmm, yeah, maybe that's how we deal with this. Maybe that's how we deal with it when we are being oppressed, when we are being beaten. But notice too, something is amiss in the mentality of the Hebrews in bondage, in captivity, in slavery. When Moses tries to intervene, Amidst a quarrel between two Hebrews where they're fighting each other. So they've been getting beat by the Egyptians, being oppressed by the Egyptians. And now they are hurting each other as well. Go figure. He tries to intervene. And the response he gets is basically, if I can paraphrase, mind your own business. But it's not just a mind your own business. It's a taunt of who do you think you are, right? Who do you think you are to talk to us and tell us what to do? No, get out of here. Shut up. Mind your own business. You don't tell us how to treat each other. Who do you think you are? It's very reminiscent of what we see in the book of Judges when a certain Levite is traveling through Gibeah and the men of the town come knocking on the door, demanding that the Levite be sent out so that they can... Have sex with him. It's very reminiscent of in Genesis when the angels come to Sodom to deliver Lot and his family out of the city before God destroys it. In both of those stories as well, when the master of the house tries to say, please don't do this thing. Don't do this heinous, evil, corrupt thing. They also get that same response who made you a judge over us? So this is a parallel that we should pay attention to and we should take note of. That mentality, that attitude. You're not the boss of me. You don't get to tell me not to do what I'm doing right now. No, 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 I don't care if it's right or wrong. No, you don't get to tell me what to do. You mind your own business or I'm going to do worse to you than I was going to do to this person. In fact, you know, I think I will. You just stay right there. I'll be with you in a minute. So there's a problem, right? The Hebrew people in Egypt have a sin problem. The Egyptians in Egypt have a sin problem. All of the people in the mix here have a sin problem. And it takes different expressions to recognize it sometimes based on their circumstance relative their peers. Just because it takes a different expression, that doesn't mean that some of these are off the hook. A Marxist Hegelian dialectic thesis and antithesis, viewing everything in terms of oppressor versus oppressed, where the oppressor is actually on the hook for everything. You make the oppressor supposedly not always actually the oppressor, but the person with the power and the wealth make them always the scapegoat for any bad action any bad behavior on the part of the supposedly oppressed. No, see, it's, it's not just that simple. Right? It's not just that simple. The oppressor, when there is actual oppression, the oppressor is culpable. They are responsible for their sins. And the oppressed, if they sin as well, in the midst of their oppression. They are also sinners, and they don't get off the hook just because they are being sinned against. That's not the way it works. So Moses flees to Midian and sits down by a well, picking back up in verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock he said to his daughters then where is he why have you left the man call him that he may eat bread and moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave moses his daughter zipporah she gave birth to a son and he called his name gershom for he said i have been a sojourner in a foreign land during Those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Man, is that a great verse. Man, is that fantastic. Like, don't miss it. Don't miss how much life is going on here. We're talking years and decades and centuries. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I'll tell you what, there have been many disappointments in my life compared with what I had expected to happen, a good thing that I had expected here or there, a reward for effort, for diligence, for application of my attention, careful planning, careful work, expanding my skill set, building out a network of peers who are professionals, who are themselves very competent and well-placed, moving my family here and there, changing jobs, changing companies, getting to know this person or that person, or we go to this church and we get plugged in and then Something happens, right? Something happens, whether it's a reversal in the economy, whether it's an upset in the health of one of my family members, like my wife in particular, whether it is conflict with somebody who just decided that they want to cause trouble. Whatever it is, I've been disappointed many times through the years. When I thought this was gonna turn out the way that it should, it should have, but then something interrupted the trajectory unexpectedly outside of my control that I did not anticipate. I follow the news cycle and I see inflation and I see COVID lockdowns, COVID lockdowns happening just right as we're trying to get our feet under us here in Colorado and get some things figured out with my wife's health, get our kids plugged into educational opportunities all of it hitting at once, and I have groaned. I have groaned on this podcast for now, approaching 600 episodes, many times. And I've given thanks to God for his goodness, for his faithfulness, for his provision, for his protection. But I have groaned at oppression, at misfortune, at people, and it again and again is people so often, who fail to reward, refuse to reward effort if it threatens their interests. (sighs) Or they actively try to sabotage because they think that they can get an, an advantage. They respond like the two Hebrews who are struggling with each other, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Or like Pharaoh, ordering that every baby boy be thrown into the Nile. They respond like that because they're going to be very, very shrewd and terminate your opportunity because your opportunity at your trajectory would lead to you eclipsing them. And they don't want that. They see that coming. At first they were excited, but now that they realize this could threaten their plans, their interests, they're going to do what it takes to stop you. I have groaned over the years at key junctures. To find that sinful man, not always other people, sometimes myself, but often enough other people being sinful, being wicked, being corrupt, being devious, being ambitious, being malicious and envious, is oppressive and hurtful and damaging. I have groaned and cried out to God. And I read this right here where it says, God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And I think to myself, of all the times where that's all I've been able to say, that is all I could think to say is, God knows. God knows. And that's not an accusation against God. That is a reminder to myself and whoever else, if it's somebody else's misfortune, and I'm trying to reassure them. I'm trying to comfort them, but I don't have anything else. I have nothing else to tell them right now. I don't know why that happened. I don't know what's going to come of it. I don't know how God is going to make this work to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes, but I know that he will. Again and again, sometimes that's all I've been able to say is God knows. God knows. And right here, we see it in Exodus. God saw the people of Israel and God knew it wasn't lost on him Then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather And they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God knew. God knew. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And you know what? That plundering, it wasn't theft. That plundering, which God promised they would do and they did, was not theft. It was wages because they had been doing the work. They had been doing the work and they had had their wages withheld because they were regarded as nothing more than animals to the king of Egypt who owned all the land and all the livestock and all the people. And he was accustomed to being obeyed like a God and yet The Almighty God saw and knew and rectified the situation. It's interesting to me that Moses is an exile. He is a fugitive because he killed an Egyptian who was beating one of his fellow Hebrews. He's a fugitive who's been away for a long, long time. He's gotten married. He's had children born to him. He's got a new life now. He started over, he's busy, and God calls him to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. Also, absolutely important, critically important that we get this. If we would conserve anything, if we would restore anything, if we would repent of anything and be saved, turning from God's wrath and destruction, it is so absolutely important that we understand God sending Moses to Pharaoh to tell him something that God knows and even tells Moses on the front end, he's not going to listen to you. I want you to tell him he's not going to listen to you, but I want you to tell him anyways. He's going to refuse, but you're going to tell him because he can't refuse if you haven't asked. You need to tell him and he needs to refuse because I'm going to strike Egypt with wonders. And by wonders here, God means plagues, judgment, punishment, discipline, correction, a certain degree of wrath, not just because Egypt has it coming, not just because Israel has been oppressed, but because God will be obeyed. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows, and so does a nation. God will not be mocked. And so God sends Moses And if we are in Moses' position here, what do we say back to God? Except they're not going to listen. They won't hear me. They're going to blow me off. They're going to ignore me. They're going to mock me. They're not going to listen. And God says, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Pharaoh is not going to do what you are going to tell him, I said, for him to do. He's not going to listen. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Even Moses' question, who will I say has sent me? (laughs) Who shall I say (laughs) I am acting on behalf of? Because Moses has no inherent intrinsic authority in and of himself. He's got nothing. If he's coming in his own name, well, they're just going to say the same thing that those two Hebrews who were struggling before he fled said to him, who made you a judge and a prince over us? which is basically the same thing as saying, shut up and mind your own business. This is none of your concern. Butt out. And Moses has surely been meditating on that exchange for years and years. Maybe when Moses knew, when he found out that he was actually a Hebrew raised in Pharaoh's household, maybe he thought he could be a prince over the Hebrew people. Maybe he thought he could be a judge to deliver them from their hard, from their hard bondage. It, you know, it obviously bothered him. It obviously distressed him to see the Hebrews being oppressed by the Egyptians because he's so angry. And you don't get angry like that in a moment, in an instant, mad enough to kill the Egyptian who's beating a Hebrew. You don't get mad enough in one moment instance. That kind of anger builds over time, seeing these kinds of things again and again and again until it breaks, until something snaps, like Ralphie in A Christmas Story. At a certain point, you just can't brush it off anymore. But now here's God appearing to Moses, speaking to Moses, Moses first question is, who shall I say has sent me? Which is another way of saying, I don't have the clout. I know that I don't. What does God say? Tell them, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, your forefathers. Tell them, I am has sent you. And if that's not good enough, well, then we have real problems. Then we have real problems. Briefly, and then I got to run and call it for this episode. There's a piece that was just sent to me yesterday by my neighbor two houses down, JP Chavez, an article in Christianity Today. Southern Baptist Convention disfellowships Saddleback Church. Kate Shellnut writes, one of the country's biggest and best-known megachurches, Saddleback Church is no longer a part of the Southern Baptist Convention SBC after bringing on a female teaching pastor last year. Saddleback was among five churches with female pastors who were deemed no longer in friendly cooperation with the denomination at a meeting of the SBC Executive Committee in Nashville on Tuesday. The Lake Forest, California congregation ordained three women from the stage in May 2021, a decision that rattled some Southern Baptists who believe the role of pastor is reserved for men. Then last year, Saddleback selected Andy Wood as Rick Warren's successor, and the church lead pastor and his wife, Stacy Wood, came on as a teaching pastor. Warren responded to calls for the SBC to cut ties with his church at the convention's June 2022 annual meeting held in Anaheim, California. Quote, are we going to keep bickering over secondary issues, he said, or are we going to keep the main thing, the main thing, end quote. And this is such an absolutely critically important moment. Don't underestimate how important it is that we would affirm the authority of God's word over and against radical egalitarianism, feminism, gender theory, progressivism. You can't keep the main thing the main thing if we don't agree on the authority of God's word. You can't. You have a different main thing if you are trying to flatter the culture and affirm all of its sensibilities, all of its mores, all of its rebellion. You are not keeping the main thing the main thing, Rick Warren. We'll get into it as I continue reading through Exodus, but even just in the book of Exodus, we see instances of attempts to innovate on what God has ordained. And God takes very seriously the sin The wickedness, the hubris, the arrogance—not even necessarily the particular thing that is being modified, but the intentionality, the intentions of the heart, which Rick Warren and his ilk—they can say all they want, they can say it all day long. Oh, we had the best of intentions. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You are being a Pharisee. You did this before men to be seen by them, so that they would speak well of you. Beware when men speak well of you. You didn't keep the main thing, the main thing, unless the main thing all along was to be spoken well of by men, which I think it was. Hindsight being 2020, I think it was. This is reminiscent of the recent clip I played for you from the Oxford Union debate about whether the church should bless homosexual unions like the Church of England is updating its book of prayer and doctrinal statements to assert. You don't have the authority, one brave minister tells them. You don't have the authority to bless sin. You don't get that right. If you are trying to claim that right, you have actually usurped God's authority, and you are going to find yourself in Pharaoh's position here very shortly. If you're not already there, you are hardening your heart. If you are called to repent of that and you double down and attack and mock who made you a judge and a prince over us, anybody who says, don't stop it. And those who just say, everybody who's bickering needs to stop bickering so we can keep the main thing, the main thing. That is also wrong because there is a truth that is plain and evident from God's word And somebody just saying, Lord, Lord, it's not going to cut it for the Lord Jesus Christ on judgment day, and it shouldn't cut it for us either. Somebody just saying, Lord, Lord, should not be a get out of jail free card. It should not be a blank check for them to do whatever they want with church polity, whatever they want with the word of God, whatever they want with Christian testimony and practice. Read your Bible from cover to cover. And you will know that. You can't miss it. Repentance is in order here. Because what Rick Warren was opposing in resisting the correction of the SBC on this point was not the SBC. He wasn't resisting the SBC. He was resisting the Word of God. And he still is, stubbornly. I scroll down through this ChristianityToday.com article, and I see... Rick Warren posted to Instagram a picture of he and his wife on the beach looking very well-fed and comfortable and happy and not the least bit chastened by all of this. Not the least bit. They should repent. One last news item and then we'll call it a good episode. We'll call it for this one. Not to be staff posted yesterday yesterday. This high schooler facing his woke school board has more courage than most adults today. I'm going to go ahead and play the audio because it's excellent, excellent, excellent. Thank you to Seth Dillon for tweeting this out, sharing it. Thank you to Not the Bee for embedding Seth Dillon, CEO of Babylon Bee's tweet in the post so that I can actually see it because I'm still not on Twitter. A year later, still not on Twitter because. I dared to clap back at Chris Jolly Hale from Tennessee failed Democrat candidate for the U S Congress with all due respect at Chris Jolly Hale. What a retarded thing to say saying that has me deprived of my ability to participate in the public discourse, the public square for a year. How about that? How about that? Tell me again that (laughs) there's no funny business. Tell me again that it's all equal. It's not. If that's what they do openly, what do they do privately? But I'm going to play this clip because this kid is my hero for the day. Take a listen.
1: Hi, my name is Brad Taylor, and I just finished my freshman year at RHS. Um, I've been a part of District 196 schools now for 10 years, and I'm going to give you a glimpse today of what's actually going on inside these schools. Um, Despite the board's attempt to deny it, District 196 schools are quickly becoming a place where promoting activism is actually more important than promoting Education. I'll take you, I'll take you back to my first day at RHS this fall. The principal came out and gave us a heartfelt speech about equality and standing together. Um, he began to list countless races, such as Latino, Asian, expressing how much they matter and how important they are. But never once did he mention a race or identity that reflects me or half the kids that were in the class. Now, members of the board, I know you haven't been to school in a while, and I know. Most of the people, I know none of you or most of you don't have any kids left in the school district, Um, but you must admit how uncomfortable it will be to be characterized just by your skin color on the first day of school and be thought that you were wrong just because of your skin color. So I'll never forget the look one of my friends gave me from across the room as we were sitting there listening to this blatant bias being expressed in the so-called equity statement by the leader of our school. To be clear, I don't need you to tell me that I matter, but hearing the condolences given to other races and leaving just one race out, it inevitably you'll start to feel like you've done something wrong. And in our principal's attempt to unify us, he instead created unwarranted boundaries and barriers between his students, pitting us against each other based on characteristics that we can't control. In another separate instance, I was told that writing all lives matter on the whiteboard was political and could be seen as offensive. When I questioned the teacher after class, she told me that she didn't have an answer and she just had to erase it and it was quickly erased. There are political signs all over RHS, specific, about specific races that matter, specific sexual orientations that matter, and specific perspectives that matter. But when I questioned the RHS administration about how these signs were political, they told me that they were supporting human rights. So when I questioned why the equity statement couldn't represent all students, they told me that to even ask that question was outlandish and offensive. And they, uh, when I asked why that was, they told me, quote, whites have a pretty good situation right now, unquote. So is that not racism, disregarding my question merely because of the color of my skin? To be honest, after enduring a year of the people in charge telling me that I'm a racist and I'm privileged and pointing out our irreversible differences, I've never noticed race more, and it's becoming the first thing I notice when I meet someone which has never before been the case. RHS administration confidently told me that RHS students and staff are happy with their equity statement, but from my experience in talking with other students, this is not the case. I know many kids who disagree with their teachers, but they're too scared to stand up because they're worried that their grades will be docked and their learning experience will be affected. My honors government teacher—I'm not going to say his name—but he's mentioned that Democrats care more about all people, while Republicans only care about themselves. And he's also inferred to us that socialism is better than democracy. He even had a statue—he had a statue of a socialist leader in his classroom. Um, I have been. I've been told by a lot of kids that they just stay silent and adjust their schoolwork to reflect an acceptable opinion to secure a good grade. I've been approached by multiple teachers who have told me in private that they just want to say that they agree with me and they support me standing up, but they can't say it in front of the class for fear of being disciplined by the administration in some way or losing their jobs. There is clearly only one way to think in this district, and that is that they are teaching their kids to shut up if they don't agree. Now, members of the board, I want you to take a good look at yourselves in the mirror tonight and ask, are you really standing up for the equality of all people, or are you just pushing a damaging political ideology um, on, on our students? A fellow co-worker at my job, who, by the way, is of color, discreetly told me that the school seemed to be pushing a very leftist agenda in class. This proved that not everyone is happy with your school, and not everyone who isn't happy is white. Now, due to all these instances I've mentioned and many more that I can't fit in this five-minute speech, I've decided to leave this district and continue school on a private Christian school online. And and there will be sacrifices, and I will not get to walk in the graduation ceremony or attend milestones at RHS, but I will be able to learn in an environment that is not intent on punishing me daily for my skin color and political views. Now, regardless of how you take my speech, whether you just shrug it off as malarkey or Fox News talking points, I encourage you to think about it because someday I'm going to be a leader. I may be the president, a governor, or just a professional golfer, but I will never stop believing that everybody has value no matter their skin color or personal beliefs. And it's a shame that you're not gonna be able to say that I was an alumni of RHS in District 196. Thank you.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 Seth Dillon's tweet. This kid has more courage, conviction, and clarity of thought than most adults today. Powerful stuff. I can't imagine how proud his parents are. And you know what? I just about guarantee his parents have his back. And they haven't been quietly telling him for years, just keep your head down. Just. Stop talking about this. Just get through. Just get that piece of paper that says you were a good boy and did what you were told. I guarantee you, his parents are not telling him you're going to be in trouble when you get home. You go to school and you challenge the teachers. And if you're right and they were saying things that weren't true and they were doing things that weren't good, we will have your back. That's what parents. That's what Christian parents should be telling their kids. Or better yet, pull your kids out. Pull your kids out. I don't care how much of an exception you think your local public school district is. It's not. It's not. Where's the line? When will you want freedom for your children more than you want the acceptance of your coworkers and your boss and your customers and your neighbors and your peers and your friends and your family? When will you care more about the freedom of your children? the health and well-being of your children than you do about how popular you are or how well you're compensated. This kid is my hero of the day because he is expressing a clarity of thought that we must, we must, we must rediscover or else we are doomed. His parents are my hero of the day because I'm just sure that they have his back. He wouldn't be leaving this school district without their help and support and encouragement, I think he said he's going to be attending a private Christian school online. Good. This is why we homeschool, ladies and gentlemen. And if you can't homeschool, then do what it takes to get your kid into a private school or a Christian school or a classical education, classical Christian education, one way or the other. Battle for the American Mind by Pete Hegseth is worth your time. Check it out. Great, great book. One of the best books that I read last year. And I read 62, one of the best books. We have to, we have to have the courage of our convictions. And if we don't, we're lost. If we don't, then what do we love so much? What is so dear to us? And is it storing up treasures for ourselves here on earth where moth and rust Destroy where thieves sneak in and steal. The exact same, the exact same mentality that had Pharaoh telling first the midwives to kill every baby boy born alive, and then all of the people of Israel, if you find a baby boy among the Hebrews, throw it in the Nile. The exact same mentality has been driving the American public education system for a century. This is the progressive model of public education. It is designed to enslave us, to make us slaves to the progressive agenda, which is not progress. It's regress. It's not progress for us. It's progress for those who regard themselves as gods among men, who regard us as nothing more than animals, to be selectively bred, to be pruned and snipped, if not deemed fit to reproduce, to be engineered infinitely perfectible. No, not in this life. Nope. But as close as we could get, we're not going to (laughs) get there (laughs) with a godless ideology that is communism, that is Marxism, that is socialism at best, but outright communism at worst, increasingly nakedly Marxist and satanic. If we have school districts in this country saying our hands are tied legally, if an after school Satan club wants to start up, our hands are tied legally, well, then the laws are broken and the law is an ass, an idiot. And who wrote the laws and who is going to rewrite those laws to bar after school Satan club and transgender ideology being pushed on little boys and girls? Who is going to rewrite the laws to protect children? Who is going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, whether he will listen or not, so that God can make a public example of him for the nations to see? Who is going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go? Because God said to. Who will do it? Who is going to come in the name of the Lord our God? and call for repentance. It galls me and it is an injustice that among the many oppressions and the shrewd dealings in our circumstance, we have the Rick Warrens who set the tone and establish the supposedly successful models of church growth, who smile without a care in the world as they completely jettison the authority of God's word in favor of being spoken well of by men. You do not have the authority to bless sin. God will not be A Man reaps what he sows. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. I'll throw links in the description for this podcast episode. You can check them out at your leisure. Share them far and wide. In order for us to have this much courage, conviction, and clarity of thought, we must fear God rather than men. We must love the truth more than life itself. We must love freedom on God's terms.